When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. And sometimes it's a bit sad. Welcome to the program, everyone. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Thanks for being here tonight. I start the program off with a bit of a heavy heart. Um, A friend of mine who I got to know through my work with Scaricon and other horror conventions uh, Sid Haig, you may know him as Captain Spaulding in a couple of the Rob Zombie movies, uh, The Devil's Rejects, the new one that just came out, Three from Hell. Uh, he's done a ton of work. In fact, his career started in about 1962. He always played a bad guy. Um, did a lot of like uh, espionage type films as the bad guy. And uh, he grew into horror roles later in his career and was just a mainstay at conventions. He passed away over the weekend, 80 years old. He had been sick um, and trying to plug away and still attend the conventions to meet fans. But the illness caught up with him and we lost him over the weekend. So Godspeed, Sid Haig, we will miss you, but your work will remind us of how special you were for eternity. So um, rest in peace, my friend. Um, We've got a really interesting show lined up for you tonight. We've got a couple of things we're going to do in the first part of the program for one quick discussion we're going to have joshua p leonard leonard joshua p warren back on the program to talk about the storm area 51 weekend what happened did anybody see anything i know there was kind of some sparse news coverage i want to know what happened and uh, joshua p warren manning the area 51 command center will be able to tell us and we'll chat with him for just a few minutes on the other side of the break and then we're going to bring in graham phillips graham has been on the program before He's known as the historical detective, also known as the real life Indiana Jones. And he's written a new book called The Green Stone, which is about what he considers to be the most um, dramatic, I guess, haunting that uh, has been recorded. In fact, he says it is more dramatic than Amityville and the Enfield haunting, if you're familiar with those. I'm sure you're familiar with Amityville. I'm sure you've seen at least... Some of the movie. Uh, So Graham is going to tell us about that particular haunting and uh, why he decided to write about it in his book called The Green Stone. That'll come up uh, just a little bit later in the show. Tomorrow night, just looking ahead a little bit, Tui Snyder will be with us. Tui is an author, a speaker, and a photographer. And Tui will decode the often forgotten meanings behind cemetery symbols. And she'll share stories from her new book paranormal texas so a lot of great stuff and seems to be a little bit of a ghost theme going on here right paranormal discussion tomorrow plus uh talking about a haunting tonight and as always we'll open up the phone lines for your comments and questions at 844-687-7669 we'll do that in the second hour of the show when we have graham phillips on the program with us 
Hope you had a great weekend, and we're getting ready to kick off a great week here on Beyond Reality Radio. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Look out, Rochester. Scaricon is coming for you. The Northeast's leading fan convention for all things pop culture is celebrating its ninth year at the Rochester Riverside Hotel, October 18th through the 20th. Scaricon brings an amazing group of celebrities, panel discussions, film screenings, great vendors, and amazing parties. It's a weekend of fun from start to finish, and it's family-friendly. For more information, visit Scaricon.com. And check us out on Facebook. Use the promo code BR. RR at checkout to save 20% on your admission. That's Scaracon.com, October 18th through the 20th in Rochester, New York. We're going to start the program out to follow up uh, something we talked about last week. I think it was, was it Thursday night? I'm not even sure which night it was. We had our guest Joshua P. Warren on the program. He was manning and did all weekend man Area 51 Command Center. And uh, of course, this last weekend was the Storm Area 51 event. Josh, it seems like it was the event that didn't really materialize. What happened? Well, you know, it's interesting. First, I want to tell you about kind of my overview of how things went, and then we'll get into some specifics that were brought back by my man in the field, Nick Weird, who was actually there documenting things. So the overview is that I want to say that this was actually a win-win for almost everyone, because Groups of hundreds of UFO enthusiasts were strewn all around southern Nevada uh, at various spots, having odd but peaceful fun. Uh, The government was respectful to everyone. There was apparently only one arrest, and that was due to indecent exposure. And, of course, you and I are big winners in all this because all the mainstream attention is continuing to help legitimize the topic of UFOs and aliens and government disclosure. And so we, we are all winners in this. However, there are a handful of businesses in the area uh, around, you know, that, that general, you know, that Nellis range, as well as some local governments that say they feel duped by the whole thing because they put out all of this money preparing for millions of people to come rushing in, and it didn't happen. And so right now, when you watch the local news here, you have people saying, uh, and again, these are business owners and government officials saying, we are taking legal action toward uh, Matty Roberts, the young man who posted this on Facebook, as well as some of his associates. And, you know, to be honest with you, I, as you know, have never been involved in the planning of this, so I don't know what kinds of relationships and agreements were made, and so I don't know um, who's right and who's wrong, but uh, I'm sure that'll be an interesting thing to get hashed out in the, in the near days. But uh, that said, aside from those people who felt they blew too much money preparing for a bigger crowd, the people who did show up and, and the people who were there on, on behalf of Area 51, I think all had a really good time. Well, I think you you made the most important point, which is for several weeks, maybe even a couple months, and I think continuing forward, there's more attention and a bit, bigger spotlight maybe put on this issue, whether it's specifically be, uh, on Area 51 or if it's just on the overall discussion we've been having regarding uh, visitors, uh, whether they're in spacecraft or otherwise. And I think that that is the most valuable uh, result of this weekend and the lead-up to this weekend. 
Yeah, absolutely. And of course, the, the premise of this was always absurd. I mean, there, there was really no way this could have ever worked out to begin with, because it's not like that, again, you can realistically storm through one gate and make your way onto right. the base with, with all that. You can't, that's not even possible once you understand the layout of the land and all that. And then beyond that, the next best thing was to have one big centralized uh, gathering, kind of like you know a Woodstock or a Burning Man esque event nearby, mm-hmm. and so I think that's where all the, the focus went to. And when that fell apart, the whole thing fragmented, and that's why you know I predicted, uh, I, I believe on your show, that there would be maybe three three hundred and fifty people or something like that. And I think I was pretty darn close to being on the money in terms of the amount of people who actually showed up around the gates. And so other than that, you had people, again, who were just sort of all around the area. So now when I talked to Nick Weird, he was keeping me updated all throughout the evening whenever he could catch a signal, which wasn't that often. He said that, uh, okay, well, he, uh, he drove there with, um, uh, with his uh, woman, Christina, at, uh, let's see, uh, they, they left about 4 o'clock in the morning. So they got there very, very early. And when they arrived, he said that they pulled up to the entrance of the actual n- notorious Area 51 driveway. And, yes, there were authorities everywhere. And he said, you know, you take your pick, you federal, county, uh, you know, state, city, and that – uh, they they said, oh boy, here we go, and that one of the uh, the officers, he wasn't sure who this person was with. A man came up, and Nick rolled his window down, and the man was very friendly, and said, you're welcome to park over here or over here, but as you probably know, do not cross this boundary. And Nick said, okay, got it. And he said that was his only interaction that he had with the authorities. And he said he didn't ever see anybody uh, showing uh, aggression. And so he spent time there around the entrance, and then he went to the various other towns around, like Rachel and Heiko, and he interviewed people on camera and with an audio recorder. He has hours and hours of stuff that we're going to have to take days to go through, so maybe I'll have some interesting new reports and audio to play for you. But uh, he, he told me that, One of the people that he found most interesting was a man who claimed on camera that he worked at Area 51 for many years. And he said that among the employees there, it became common for them to go out to local bars and to spin the biggest yarns they could about what was happening. Mm. And they would, he said they would actually, you know, sometimes record what they were saying and that that was a game for them uh, to see who could tell the biggest lies. And so he was basically saying that there, there is, uh, if not officially, some kind of an unofficial mentality among those who work at the base to go out and contrive these stories and sort of mislead people about what may or may not be happening there, which further creates this hall of mirrors effect which makes it almost impossible for us to ever discern the truth from the fiction, even if we are exposed to the truth. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Is that a misdirection effort, or is it? Uh, are, are they implying that there's nothing going on there, but because people think there's something going on there, we can have fun with them? Well, 
in, in the case of going around to bars and just talking up the, the, the normal average citizen, you could say that perhaps that's just for fun. But he went so far as to claim that on occasions they would actually take planes and use glow-in-the-dark type material to create outlines on the bottom of the planes that would make them look like flying saucers. Hmm. So that when they would fly those planes around, that it would very intentionally and officially mislead people and create a lot of confusion and also a lot of credibility issues. Because, you know, I've always felt, just in my own research over the years, that um, I can talk about a lot of stuff that may be touchy and I can get away with it because if they all they have to do at the end of the day is say well look look who you're talking to you're talking to this guy who's a ghost hunter who's going to believe him right you know and so it gives you a lot of freedom when you're talking about things that they can easily discredit and so if they're going to have some big operation that's secret then it would make sense there would be a division at very least that would intentionally go out and try to uh, distract people and try to give the impression that there was an alien invasion so they can make it all sort of sound crazy and chuckle about it, which is what happened when the Phoenix Lights went over uh, Arizona and you saw the governor at the time bring out at his press conference a guy in an alien suit and, and blew it all off and laughed about it. And then years later, the governor came out as a civilian and said, I feel bad about what I did because the lights were real. I even saw them myself, and I was a former fighter pilot. So, you know, this is a strategy that is used, and um, that's why it almost makes you think, JV, that we're never possibly going to have real disclosure unless the ETs or whatever you want to call them are the ones who are instigating it and want it to happen. Yeah, I mean, it seems like we might be taking baby steps, but it's a long time um, before we get to what we're looking for. We only have a couple minutes here. I want to ask you quickly, did anybody, particularly Nick, or any other reports come in about any type of odd behavior in one of two ways? Did anybody see anything in the skies? And did anybody see anyone in the crowd that may have not necessarily been from Earth? Well, um, nobody saw anything notable in the skies that, I, that I've heard about. Um, but there were lots of weird <laughs> individuals all over the area. And I, I even wondered if some of the people running around in alien costumes were agents from Area 51. Um, so it, it would probably be almost impossible to discern uh, a, a normal person from an abnormal person under the circumstances. So there very well may have been aliens among the crowd. But uh, I think the government strategy that worked best here was to do whatever they could to encourage uh, the breakdown of an organized event, to have multiple things going on that sort of confuse people as to where to go and what mm. to do. And then, fortunately, they didn't have to get aggressive because nobody who showed up ha- had a negative demeanor. And Nick said he was very impressed by the fact that everybody he met actually seemed to have a really warm cool attitude and nobody seemed to want any trouble whatsoever well that's good to hear and again i i applaud just the idea that maybe more attention will be given to this more people are now interested and maybe um have woken up to uh the idea that we need to get some answers and i guess that's what we can hope for now i've got about a minute here i know um you know you're always working on things what's next on your horizon 
My goodness. Well, I am working on two or three different experiments. Uh, one of them involves trying to recreate the space-time effect, like the anomaly effect that I actually documented in the field. Uh, next month, October, I'm going to be at the Chicago Ghost Conference, which is always a big, huge, fun event. And then it's important to, uh, to let everybody know that, hey, if you're going to be in the Vegas area, Every Saturday, we have the Creepy Vegas Ghost and UFO Show. All the information is at creepyvegas.com. I am often there in person. If I'm not there, Nick is the host, and you get to see the latest video footage, and we take your reports, and it's a forum for us to continue building on this momentum. Josh, thanks so much for you and Nick keeping an eye on things around Area 51 this weekend for us and kind of giving us this update because a lot of people were very, very curious as to what was going to happen. Absolutely. Well, the story isn't quite over. We'll see what happens with these lawsuits. But, uh, JV, thank you for uh, covering this, and we'll talk again soon. Sounds good. Good friend, uh, Joshua P. Warren. His website is his name, Joshua P. Warren. Uh, it's very easy to find. No period in the P after the uh, initial P. Turns out they were expecting like thirty to 50,000 people, and I think the final count, they figured maybe a couple thousand showed up. Seven people or so arrested, one of them... Uh, a Canadian man who was arrested for um, relieving himself on the Area 51 fence. <laughs> I don't know what goes through people's minds at times, uh, but he was arrested. But other than that, there's very little uh, trouble, and that's good. But I do think that the fact that attention has been drawn to this whole discussion is a good thing. That can only help. Um, you know, we've we've gotten new information from the U.S. Navy about uh, videos that they have released, although they didn't intend to release them. And uh, we seem to be making a little bit of progress in getting some answers. Whatever those answers are and wherever they lead us, we just want some answers, right? Um, but as I promised, tonight we're going to be talking about a very, very interesting paranormal investigation our guest is a returning guest, Graham Phillips. He's an author and a historical detective. We'll be talking about an account of an extraordinary paranormal investigation that he took part in back in 1979. Graham is a historical detective, also known as the real-life Indiana Jones. And it's a real honor to have him back. Graham, welcome back to Beyond Reality Radio. Thank you very much. Great to be back. So let's start out. Just give us kind of the, uh, the nutshell version of uh, what this new book's about. Okay, well, it's a a 40-year-old mystery, and it's um, basically a 40th anniversary edition of the book, The Green Stone. And it's 40 years ago, in 1979, myself and a number of others were running a magazine called Strange Phenomena, which investigated all sorts of paranormal mysteries, from a a town called Wolverhampton in the centre of England. And one of the things that we investigated was the story, the legend, that the British monarch Mary, Queen of Scots, once possessed a green gemstone in a silver ring that was said to have had miraculous powers. And this stone, after she was executed, was hidden. And a series of clues were supposed to be left in this old Elizabethan manor house in the centre of England. And just at the time we were doing this magazine, renovations to this building were taking place, and behind wood panelling that seems to have been deliberately boarded up for 400 years were a series of paintings. And it was these series of paintings that 
local historians decided were the clues that were supposed to have um, led to the whereabouts of this magical green stone, if you like. And we decided to see if we could unravel these clues to solve the mystery and go in search of this uh, green stone. And that's how it all began. So you set out on another treasure hunt because you've done a lot of these. Um, and I'll, I use the word treasure hunt, but it's really a historical uh, mystery or historical riddle hunt, if you will. Um, before we get into the nuts and bolts of this, give us an idea of what we're talking about geographically here. Uh, where where are we in, in England um, in, in, when we start talking about these places? Okay, it's smack bang in the middle of England. Um, it's around about 120 miles north west of London. And all these places that I'll mention are within a few miles of each other okay. near the city of Birmingham. Mm-hmm. Now, Birmingham is probably known to Americans as the city where the series Peaky Blinders is set. <laughs> right. So that people know about Birmingham now. Whenever I used to say I came from Birmingham, they thought I meant Alabama. <laughs> but Birmingham in England is the second biggest city in Britain, and it's in the centre. So, But it's not actually in the centre of the city. It's just outside the city to the west, and Wolverhampton is kind of like a suburb stuck on the outside of Birmingham. But the headquarters that we had of the magazine at the time, the offices, was an old Victorian building on a secluded leafy close. So don't imagine a um, a kind of city environment. It's more like you were in, a, in, in the countryside, really, because it was surrounded by parkland. And the, the Elizabethan manor where these clues was, were set was right out in the countryside, about 10 miles to the south of where we had the offices of the magazine. Is that right? Does that give you some idea? That helps a lot. So uh, as this story became um, on your radar, as, as, as it was brought to your attention, did you know anything about the legend of the, of the gem, of the stone, um, or anything that had been attached to it, possibly? Well, no, not originally. When, when you said I've been in search of other historical relics in the past, that's absolutely true. I've done an investigation into the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy Grail, many other ancient artifacts. But this was the first one. Until this point, I was really only interested in the paranormal. And the magazine strange phenomena, basically investigated the paranormal. And it was this investigation that came up with this green stone story that led me more into being involved in historical mysteries, historical rather than just paranormal. So it started when a number of people that were involved with the magazine that we knew of, people that we'd been investigating like psychics and mediums, started coming up with the same message and telling us at the Strange Phenomena magazine that we should go in search of this green stone that was hidden after the gunpowder plot of 1605, which is when the Catholics tried to 
kill the king, James I, by blowing up Parliament. That failed. That's what Guy Fawkes was involved in, the character the, whose mask everybody wears when they're trying to be in the, what's that called, anonymous. Right. When you get that mask, that's a Guy Fawkes mask from the, from the film V, Vendetta, I think. And these people said to us, it was this, this greenstone was hidden off the gunpowder plot of 1605. It had belonged to Mary Queen of Scots originally, who had been executed in the 1580s, and that it had these miraculous powers. And that's the first I ever heard of it. But because we were getting this information from lots of different people who didn't know each other, I mean, we thought it could have been a hoax and we were being wound up. But back then, they didn't have the internet or anything. We didn't have mobile phones. Communication was by phone. If you lived in one town, the chances of you were ever knowing somebody somewhere else, unless you went to work there or something, were very slim. It's not like today. Right. So we investigated this and we found, well, these people seem to be getting this sort of psychic message and dreams or whatever, uh, completely separately to each other. So we thought, well, maybe there's something in this. So it started off as a paranormal investigation. So when we actually went around, uh, they said that the, it, that the the clues had been left in this old Victorian manor house, uh, sorry, old Elizabethan manor house called Harvington Hall. And when we contacted the place and asked them, did they know anything about this Greenstone story? They said, oh, yes, there's a legend. So that's the first we knew of it. When you were doing this initial research, you keep saying they said, uh, they told you. Who is they and who uh, who knew of this? Who, who had this information? Okay, to start off with nobody. The first person to ever tell us about this was one of the... Uh, there was a, a lady called Penny Blackwell who was a spiritualist medium. And one of the uh, journalists that worked for the magazine, a man called Terry Shotton, um, had investigated Penny Blackwell as a medium. He'd gone along to some of her sessions and decided that she was very good. You know, there's a lot of evidence for psychic phenomena with what she was doing. And she phoned him up one day and asked him to go around there. And he went around to her house and she played him a tape of her own voice. But she'd gone off into a trance and because nobody else was there, she started to tape record herself. And on this tape that she played him, she suddenly starts speaking in a different sort of voice and says to Terry that the magazine that he works for, Strange Phenomena, are going to be involved in something really important. There's going to be a quest that you've got to discover something. Now, she didn't know what it was, but she said it was very important. Well, he didn't really take much notice of this. He thought, oh, well, it's just her imagination. Until he got home and he got a phone call from a friend of his, just a family friend who was hadn't previously considered himself psychic in any way, a man called Alan Beard, who phoned him up and said, look, I was just um, sitting down and suddenly into my mind, I saw this vision of a green stone set in an old silver ring. And I think we've got to go and find it. Now, Alan Beard knew nothing about any, we hadn't, you know, he, he wasn't interested in the paranormal. He was simply a family friend of Terry Shotton. And so then Terry said, this is really weird. And he phoned me and told me about the situation with Penny and Alan Beard about this quest and this green stone. And then after this, there was another lady called Marion Sunderland, who we knew from, uh, she came from North Wales, didn't know either of these other two people. We knew her because her daughter had had a, a UFO encounter and, a, and um, a book had been written about her UFO experience. 
and we had interviewed Marion and her daughter. So Marion knew our phone number, and then she phoned us completely out the blue and says, I don't know why I'm phoning you, but I had a really vivid dream last night of a green stone that I think you ought to find. And that's how it started. And other people continued to contact us with more of the message, if you like, until we got this information concerning Harvington Hall. And when we phoned there, they said there was a legend about the stone. So as far as I can work out at that time, it was completely impossible for these people to have collaborated in some kind of hoax. Graham, when you were uh, receiving phone calls and contact from people before you'd started this investigation and looking into this particular mystery and people were were all giving you basically the same message. They had visions of a green stone or a green gem or, uh, you know, something of of that sort. Uh, Did that frighten you at all? I mean, it it almost seems like that's that's uh, quite supernatural in itself. Well, we were actually all interested in the paranormal. That's why we were running the magazine, Strange Phenomena. And um, I was the editor at the time. So I'd kind of heard lots of weird tales. But this was the first thing that had actually happened directly concerning me, if you like. Um, So I I think excited was more than (laughs) frightened. If If I'd just been some ordinary guy sitting at home and suddenly everybody started phoning me up, you know, I'd have been a bit worried, but we did have a magazine and the phone number and the address of the magazine was in the magazine. So at first, I think I tended to think somebody's, you know, a rival magazine or something is trying to wind us up, you know, get us involved in something and then expose us as a, you know, expose it as a hoax to prove that we were no good at investigating or something. So to start off with, I was a bit skeptical, even though I thought, how are they even doing this? You know, these people can't possibly know each other. In the modern days of the Internet, you know, you could see how it could have worked, but not back then. You have to put yourself into a frame of mind as it was 40 years ago. And the more we thought about it, the more we thought, well, this just it can't be a hoax. And then when we found out there was actually a legend concerning this green stone surrounding this place, Harvington Hall, and these pictures had just been found on the wall that had been hidden deliberately behind panelling for 400 years and were only found during renovations. We thought, well, even if, well, even if these people have found out about this and have somehow collaborated to, to wind us up, then there's still a mystery to be solved because there is this legend about this, these set of clues that lead to this stone being hidden in this house. These clues, these really strange paintings, did seem to have been found, or were found, and they had been hidden. So there seemed to be a genuine historical mystery to try to solve. We have uh, a short segment here, but as um, as this started to unfold for you, now I'll remind everybody, this is a two-part story. The first part is unraveling the mystery, and the second part is what happened once you did unravel the mystery, and we'll get to that part on the other side of the break. But as you started to uncover these clues and you started to recognize there were actually meat on these bones, um, that must have been exciting as well. Yeah, just about the actual unraveling of the clues to start off with. Um, I went along to Harvington Hall where the clues were, with a person I'm sure you've had on your show, Andrew Collins. Yes, of course. He's another um, big name now, investigating the paranormal and historical mysteries. And myself, he used to work for the magazine as our senior correspondent, senior researcher, basically. 
And the two of us together went to Harvington Hall. And just to describe it, it's a big old um, Tudor manor with dozens and dozens of rooms. Um, and it's open to the public now. And it's pretty much as it was 400 years ago. And the paintings that have been discovered, or a wall mural, if you like, was in an upstairs corridor. And these faded paintings depicted nine heroic characters from history and legend, such as uh, the biblical Samson and um, Alfred the Great, uh, old British king. Um, but the central image showed a youthful King Arthur wielding Excalibur. And it was that particular image that kind of drew our attention because it was the central image of the whole thing. The pictures were called the Nine Worthies, as I mentioned, and the central image is of a youthful, youthful King Arthur wielding Excalibur. Now, what I'm explaining now, it took us a considerable time to figure all this out. It wasn't done in one afternoon. But we eventually reasoned that in the in the in the picture behind Arthur on the hill uh, behind Arthur in the picture are depicted his knights gathered on a hill and eventually we kind of thought this might relate to something in the local landscape because just a couple of miles away there was actually a hill called Knights Hill and old maps revealed it had been called Knights Hill 400 years ago so that's what first drew our attention to the possibility that we, it might relate to somewhere in the map, on, on the map. Uh, below the hill, Knight's Hill, there were these two lakes joined by a little stream. And over that stream, there was a bridge that we discovered had been there at the time the clues were left, 400 years ago. And when we discovered the name of that bridge, known locally as Arthur's Bridge, we really thought we were onto something because remember in the painting, the image, central image was young King Arthur wielding Excalibur right. with the knights on the hill behind him. So we've got an Arthur's Bridge, which was called that back in, uh, in, in the early 1600s. And, um, and knights, uh, we've got Knights Hill with a bridge below it called Arthur's Bridge. That must have been, we thought, what the clues were leading to. Now, cutting a very long story short, we because the figure of King Arthur in the painting is looking down and to his left and behind him there is the hill behind him and to his left is the hill with the knights on it. If you stood with the hill behind you and to your left on the bridge, then you'd be facing on out onto the large of the two lakes. And if you look down and to the left, you were looking at the foundation stones of the bridge to that side uh, uh, in, uh, to that side of it. And we eventually, because the, the, the painting was called The Nine Worthies, we decided that what if we looked nine stones across and nine stones down from the bridge? You couldn't do a nine stones, um, uh, you couldn't do any other configuration of nine and nine, else you'd just end up in the water. Um, if anybody wants to see all this, by the way, visually, I made a 30-minute film about it all with interviews with all the original people done in 1980 and images of all film of all these places myself and Andy Collins go back to this bridge 
and it's on my YouTube channel, which is Graham Phillips, um, called Graham Phillips Author, and it's called The Green Stone. If you watch that video, you can see all these places. Um, so nine stones along, nine stones down. When we got down there, it was completely overgrown with brambles and, uh, and thorn bushes and so forth. So we had to pull all this away to get to those stones. And they were, they were completely set. They'd obviously been there for, for centuries. And we eventually managed to get, uh, remove the ninth stone along and nine stones down. And we were totally shocked because behind this stone on a little ledge was a short, uh, short sword or a long dagger heavily encrusted with silt and sediment. Now, what was so astonishing about finding this, finding anything behind there obviously is astonishing, but what was so astonishing about finding a sword was that just before we'd set off that day to go to the bridge, and we hadn't told, myself and Andrew Collins hadn't told anybody um, that we were going to, to that uh, bridge that day. Alan Beard, the person who had the first uh, psychic impression, if you like, or vision of the green stone, had said he'd had another vision that we were looking for a sword at this time. Wow. He said he'd seen a sword, and that sword in turn would lead us to the stone. And Marion Sunderland, the lady who had also told us about uh, that we should be looking for a green stone, said that she, she saw a lake, she saw a stone with a sword on top of it, and she said that that's when we find this sword that she thought we were looking for at this point too that there would be this overwhelming smell of rotting vegetation. And that was exactly what was how it happened. We were down by this, you know, down by the water of this bridge, and it was all sort of muddy water, and it totally stank of old rotting vegetation, just like she'd said. And there, on this ledge behind the stone, was a short sword. Um, and it was encrusted with, 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 with like, silt sediment, we took it to uh, a nearby museum to have it uh, cleaned up and analysed, and they identified it as a 16th century Scottish ornamental sword, short sword, called a dirk. And when they examined it, they found that upon its um, hilt was the coat of arms of Mary, Queen of Scots, the very person who is said to have held the green stone. So at this point, I mean, we were absolutely knocked out because not only had we solved in this ancient historic, well, a 400-year-old historical mystery and solved these clues to lead to something, but we'd been helped find this by a series of psychic messages. It was the first time anything like this, as far as I know, had ever happened. Yeah, and how much time elapsed from the point where you, you this this was brought to your attention and you recovered that sword. I think if I remember rightly about two weeks. So it all happened rather quickly. Oh yeah. It all happened rather quickly, but we were literally working on this like day and night. Um, in fact, when we eventually found the sword, it was nighttime because we were so kind of involved <laughs> in doing all this that it was pitch black and it was kind of quite spooky to because I started thinking, well, where are these psychic messages coming from? Something new about this sword being there. And how did these, why were these people picked to get this psychic message? What, why did they want us to find it? So it was all pretty exciting. 
And obviously, the book, you also, you, you were talking about uh, visuals in your YouTube video, which is a great place uh, to check that out. But your book has illustrations as well. You've got photos and you've got pictures of the, uh, the, the, the wall art that led you to all of this um, in the book. Now, uh, once you unco- discovered the sword, what was next? What happened next? Well, the, the, the next bit is quite a long story uh, about how that led us to find the, the stone. But a a simple version of it is this. The daughter of the lady who um, Marion Sunderland had given us some of the psychic messages, she was only about 12 or something at the time. She said she didn't know anything about any all this was going on, as far as I know. She told her mother that she had to hold this sword and take it to the bridge, and that would lead her to where the stone was hidden. Now, there was more involved in all of it than all that. There was other historical clues. But cutting a long story short, that by going to the bridge, holding the sword and using as you would do a divining rod, I suppose. Oh, wow. She she led us to this nearby bend in in a local river, the River Avon, called the Swan's Neck. And based also on other dreams her mother and she had had about the location of where the stone would be, um, at the end, by, by this bend in the river called the Swan's Neck, there was an avenue of trees, and at the end of it was a mound that Marion had dreamt about. And when this mound was dug into, about three feet down, we uncovered a brass casket that uh, was later analysed by the museum to be over uh, to date from the late uh, 1500s. And inside of it was this small green stone um about three quarters of an inch long half an inch wide like rounded on the one side flat on the bottom like it would have once been set in a ring and it was made from simple jade so astonishingly when we took this to alan alan beard first saw it and he was the first person to have a vision of this stone he said yeah that is exactly what i saw in my vision weeks before graham before we get back into the story how many books have you written so far you've got a lot 18. Wow. <laughs> and and are they all um, about uh, your uh, research and adventures into uh, what we would consider to be some of history's biggest mysteries? Yeah, that's it, basically. I've sort of spent the last, well, the last 40 years investigating <laughs> various mysteries across the world. You've looked at, looked at and for the Holy Grail, the Ark of the Covenant, Legend of King Arthur, Robin Hood, all of these, uh, what we would be, con- what we consider to be some of the greatest legends and mysteries of, of, uh, all time, and certainly ones that, that thrive in popular culture as well today. Any of those stand out to you as being, um, the, the end result of your research was surprising? I think when I found what could be the actual original Holy Grail, <laughs> yeah. um, that was back in 1991, and uh, it caused such controversy that um, even the Pope got involved. That was, a, that was a book called The Chalice of Magdalene. I, I remember that discussion when you were on last. We've got about five minutes in this segment. I want to uh, pick up where we left off. You have discovered this stone you think your story is pretty much over you're pretty satisfied with uh how you uh solved this particular mystery you bring the stone back to your office i believe and that's when the trouble begins yeah remember this stone was said according to legend to have some kind of supernatural power exactly what 
the legends varied about. But when we took it back to the office, which is an old rambling Victorian building in, in, in the town of Wolverhampton, um, strange things suddenly started to happen. Now, we didn't associate it with the stone at first. Suddenly there was like uh, the, the first thing that happened were people started to get electric shocks from various appliances in the house. And they, that was mysterious. Um, lights began to fuse and blow far more frequently than you'd expect. We called in the electricity company. They couldn't find any answer for it. And then things got really weird when just as it got dark one night when people were still working at the magazine, this was taking place in the fall period, so it got dark fairly early. And what happened was that suddenly this weird incense-smelling smoke suddenly filled the whole place. And first we thought there was a fire, we checked all the rooms, but the smoke was not only in one or two particular areas, it was throughout the whole house, even in closets and behind closed doors. And it basically, this smoke just filled everywhere. Um, and then, but it dissipated after about 10 minutes and no one could find anything to account for it. We thought there might be a fault in the wiring. Electricity company was called back in. They couldn't find anything wrong. And then over the next couple of weeks, virtually every night, just as it got dark, this smoke began to appear. And so we got loads of people in there to witness it, including local TV companies who filmed it happening. And no one could explain where this smoke was coming from. That, plus all these electrical anom anomalies, made us think that there was something really weird going on. Was the activity that we are talking about now, did that escalate gradually? Did it start subtly and then become more and more obvious and more and more prominent? It, it, it escalated gradually. The stone had been actually found, incidentally, on the 31st of October, 40 of years ago. Of course it was. <laughs> on Halloween. And this happened over the next few weeks, few months. And after the weird electrical anomalies and the smoke, then the smoke stopped. But then other strange things started to happen, like people heard noises and strange sounds in the place. And eventually... The, what, with the electrics, people thought there must be something wrong with the electrics because eventually the whole lot fused out and no one could get them fixed. And so we had to move the headquarters of the magazine to somewhere else and the place just remained empty, but we still had a year to run on the lease of the place. So we kept going back there and thinking we had something that was like poltergeist phenomena, you know, so close to home was something that we couldn't help but decide we're going to have to investigate this. As you were seeing this smoke, mysterious smoke, fill the room night after night, did it come from a single source or did it, did it appear everywhere at the same time? It appeared everywhere at the same time because, remember, this had happened over quite a few nights. And so we were able to put people in lots of different rooms and they all said the same. It just seemed to have materialized out of nowhere in all the rooms simultaneously. And were you ever, ever able to capture any of this? You said you had television crews or t stations on site to witness some of this. Any of this ever caught on film? Yes, it was. It was caught on film. Um, we'd, we've still, I mean, the original film, the TV company took a bit. I don't know where that is. But yes, it was, it was caught on film. It was recorded by various journalists, other paranormal researchers. Nobody could account for it. Now, when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about other activity that occurred and kind of came to a head, and then you took action to do something about this. But before we go to the break, Graham, where can people get a hold of the book, The Greenstone? 
Okay, Amazon.com or Amazon.co.uk. Just look up the Greenstone, Graham Phillips, and you'll find it, the new 40th anniversary edition. Graham, I have to say, because you've you've talked about smoke-filling rooms, you've talked about noises, you've talked about electrical problems in the building, but the... And, and to use a pun based on your work, the holy grail of any kind of paranormal activity is apparitions. And this stone didn't disappoint you there either, did it? No. I mean, after things, I mean, things just gradually built up. On one occasion, Andrew Collins stayed over in the building at night and woke in the middle of the night to find flames leaping from his sleeping bag. He managed to get away without any kind of um, harm to himself. And the next day, there was a, a newspaper article with him holding this burnt sleeping bag. And, you know, it, oh, it, it, was, it was really attracting a lot of attention. So we got dozens of witnesses to all this. And the, we had whispering noises. Items began to start to be thrown around, typical poltergeist-type activity. But then, as you say, the apparitions began to appear. Firstly, people started to see this uh, strange Victorian fellow, a guy in a top hat and old Victorian clothes, a long coat, a uh, bearded figure, wandering round the building. And this was seen by many characters. I didn't see him myself. Um, on another occasion, and this is what was really strange, it wasn't just figures from the past. It seemed to be contemporary people. People started claiming, and these were people who didn't know each other, people who had come to the building um, because they'd heard about the story, they turned up and started seeing a woman in modern clothing at the time. If you think back to 1979, that was like the punk era. So we started getting people in those kind of clothing being seen in the house by different people who didn't know each other. So it wasn't just ghosts from the past. It seems to be figures from the present or from some alternative reality or something. And But probably the most... Uh, disturbing apparition that appeared was when um, four of us, and I saw this myself, witnessed the appearance of what can only be described as something that looked like an ancient Egyptian princess appear in full view in the front office of the magazine. And she, for a start, she was stark naked, except for the headdress and the eye makeup, as you'd expect from Egyptian times. And she seemed to be just hovering in the middle of the room. Now, four of us all saw this. Sadly, in those days, we didn't have phone, uh, mobile phones and cameras and all that sort of thing. Right. So we never got definitive evidence that we'd seen it. You'd have to take our word for it. But one of the people who saw it was a local policeman who just so happened to be visiting the place. I mean, it was absolutely astonishing. And she remained there for a few moments and then seems to disappear. I saw this and we all thinking, well, maybe we're just I'm hallucinating. But how can four of us share the same hallucination? And what's an ancient Egyptian princess doing in a in a Victorian house in the middle of England? So it really was some strange apparitions that we were seeing. As you started to assess all of this, before you took action to do something about it, but as you looked at what was happening, you recalled how it was all brought to your attention to begin with, with these visions from many people. Um, did you come to any conclusions as to how this was coming together and what the source might be? And when I say this source, I mean, you know, it, was it a demonic type source? Was it some a soul looking for help? Uh, did you come to any conclusions? Well, over the years since, I've done research, and the stone was actually known historically. I won't go into all the details, it could take too long. 
but it was known as something called the lapis exilis. Or it was a stone that was supposed to have been possessed originally by the Elizabethan astronomer and astrologer and occultist, Dr. John Dee. And he believed that it was able to, I suppose in modern terms, warp reality. Now, if anything can be said about this strange haunting, if you like, of the office in Wolverhampton is that it wasn't your typical everyday ghost story. Right. It was a kind of warping of reality when you've got Egyptian figures, Victorian figures, modern day characters all appearing in the house and the kind of phenomena that were taking place were on one occasion this really weird blue gelatinous substance began oozing from the walls. I mean it was just so many different things were happening. So we never what how these people were getting the messages we didn't know at this point we really went associating it with the green stone we thought that because we'd had so many mediums and paranormal experiments and things you know we'd invited a lot of mediums to the headquarters and done seances if you like and we'd done experiments into the paranormal and we thought this is what had started it off we didn't really think about the green stone until marion sunderland one of the first people to tell us about the stone she contacted us one day and said that she had another of her dreams and believed that it was the green stone itself that was causing this phenomena and that it would carry on, uh, not only there, but it would spread, she said, if we didn't somehow discharge, that's the word she used, the power of the stone. And uh, there was other weird things happened. The house suddenly started crumbling away from the insides, like you know, pipe, ru pipes rusted and burst. The ceilings began to collapse. Uh, plaster fell from the walls, not over years, but weeks. It was almost as if time inside the house was accelerated. Um, and she said this would spread out, plus the phenomena, if we didn't discharge the stone. Now, whether that would have happened, I don't know. But she told us that we had to take the stone to a nearby consecrated ground, which was happened to be an old priory, a monastic building in the woods not far from Wolverhampton. And this ruined priory, she said, some of the people said that this that was where they believed the stone had been fashioned. And we had to take it there. And at 9.30 at night, on this particular time when we had to take the stone to this place, the stone would discharge. And we thought, OK, fine, we'll do this. Nine of us went there, as well as Marion. She said she ought to put the stone on this burial mound that was just outside the grounds of the Priory, and this uh, surrounded by these trees in this woodland. And then she said, retreat to the Priory itself and wait to see what happens at 9.30. And at 9.30, all hell broke loose. This stone was hidden, and a series of clues led you to it. Uh, do you believe now, again, in retrospect, retrospect that the uh, act of hiding this was an effort to stop the activity that may have been happening to someone else, the person that hid it? Probably. I mean, we found out later that the area where it was found was haunted by all sorts of strange things. Uh, local fishermen would never go near there because they said there was it was it, it was to, you know, anglers. Uh, wouldn't fish there because they said that um, strange things happened to them. One guy claimed he'd been pushed into the water by some kind of unseen hands. So, yes, I think it probably was. Once you released or discharged the energy from the stone, um, 
what happened to the stone? Did you did you take it back to your office after that? Well, we took it to this priory, placed the stone on this mound in this trees, repeat, retreated to the inside the walls of this ruined priory about 50 feet, 60 feet away or something. No, maybe a bit more than that. Stood there. It was dark. And when it got to 9.30, there came these most eerie screeches over where the the woodland was, where the stone had been placed. And then this followed by suddenly these five balls of light rose into the air. And we just watched them. I mean, they were like sort of globes of light. I don't know, about four feet across each, rose into the air. Nine of us were there. Two of the people there had never even been involved in paranormal stuff before. So they went kind of primed to see they were, you know, to see things. Um, it rose into the, they, these balls of light rose into the air, fused as one, moved towards us, and then exploded with this brilliant light and an ear-shattering bang. And after that, Marion said, "Right, it's done." And I think the words that somebody used were "flee." And we just ran out of that place, got out of there, got in the cars and drove away. And we didn't come back for the stone until the next morning. And Marion then told us that that's great. The stone's now discharged. She didn't know how she knew, but that's what she told us. And nothing ever happened to it after that. We didn't, the phenomena stopped. Whatever the stone was taken, nothing took place. So what we'd done then seemingly was what they had been unable to do 400 years earlier. And then you decided to write about it. And I wrote the book, The Green Stone, with uh, uh, another guy that was involved at the time, Martin Keatman. And there were just so many witnesses to all this. I mean, we didn't have it all on film. Some of it was on film, as I said before, but because nobody had video cameras and stuff back then, it's just such such a pity. But the, the sheer number of witnesses made it, in my opinion, one of the most incredible paranormal, true-life paranormal stories ever told. This was taking place at the same time as the Amityville horror right. and um, other stories like the uh, the Enfield haunting, which ended up in, in one of those uh, uh, one of the conjuring series of films. And this was all happening around the same time. So there was a kind of flap of weird paranormal stuff taking place in Britain in, and throughout the world in America, too, in 1979. So I don't know. That's all I really can explain about it. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, because it does seem that the the late 70s was a time that was rife with very, very significant hauntings and paranormal, paranormal activity. And you cited three of them. There were a few others. Do we have any understanding why that it was so concentrated in that time? I don't know. People have done loads of research and written loads of books about UFO flaps and why UFO activities tends to take place over a period of time, then it dies down. But I don't think anyone's done it about paranormal or poltergeist activity and things like that. No one's ever really done any research into it. I'm actually writing a book at the moment, a kind of retrospective view of all this and other things we've found out. So I'm hoping to come to some answers about that. Do you continue to investigate new cases of the paranormal? I haven't been. Uh, since that time, I've mainly concentrated on historical mysteries because, well, no other paranormal thing came along for me to investigate, really. And once the magazine had finished, I mean, it, it um, you know, once I, I then went into just writing books about historical mysteries. But now, as it's this 40-year anniversary of the event, and incidentally, if anyone's in Britain on the 26th of October in the town of Wolverhampton, we're having a Greenstone 
conference, a kind of event to celebrate it. And people can come along. If they want to know about that, just go to Andrew Collins's website, andrewcollins.com, and look up Green Stone Conference. So you can actually meet some of these people that were involved in it if you happen to be there. Um, but this has got me really interested in the paranormal again. So the book I'm writing now is all about some of the events that have happened since the Greenstone story to people that were involved in it and trying to make some sense of it. It's a fascinating story. Um, the book is available now. And as you said, you can you can uh, find it on Amazon. It's probably the easiest way. Um, you said that this particular investigation was the first that you had done, which led you into a career of looking for things like the Holy Grail and the Ark and the legend of King Arthur. Um, that's a pretty fascinating career path. You, mu- you must be uh, very, very satisfied with the, with the type of work you're able to do. And this particular story kind of opened that door for you. It did. I mean, before that, I had no interest or knowledge about historical matters. And so I decided to study history after that and look into historical mysteries. Why? Because the problem about investigating the paranormal is you never really come to any any <laughs> true answers. And after the after the, um, the the events that had taken place during the Green Stone story, that was so amazing. I was never going to find anything even remotely like that. So I decided to concentrate on uh, mysteries that I might be able to come to some answers about, and hence looking for ancient historical artifacts and trying to solve unsolved historical mysteries. Once again, this book is called The Greenstone, but there are 18 books uh, that you can explore. Go to Graham's website, grahamphillips.net. Any other place you'd like people to go to follow you, maybe a social media or something, Graham? Yeah, my Facebook, just look for Graham Phillips author. That's that's what I call myself so that don't get confused with other Graham Phillipses. And that's Facebook, but also look for Graham Phillips author, my um, YouTube channel, which has got um, films of all the Greenstone stuff and all the other books that I've done. That's terrific. Promise you'll come back after you complete your next book. I certainly will. Thank you very much. Thank you as well. I know you had to get up pretty early for this interview. We appreciate it. Welcome back to the program. I always enjoy a pop song that's also a history lesson. I mean, that's really something that I, I, I get a kick out of. Of course, that's a Falco tune, uh, Rock Me Amadeus. Uh, when was that popular? Mid-80s? Late 80s? Yep. Somewhere in there? Somewhere in there. Uh, welcome back to the show, everybody. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Again, thank you to Graham Phillips. Great guest. We always enjoy having him on. His website is grahamphillips.net. The book we were talking about tonight, the search for this green stone and then the subsequent uh, paranormal activity that followed its uh, discovery it's called the green stone you can find it on amazon as well but he's also written books such as the wisdom keepers of stonehenge which we talked about last time he was on the program and many many others tomorrow night tui snyder will be with us author speaker photographer tui will decode the often forgotten meanings behind cemetery symbols and share stories from her new book paranormal texas i i mentioned this before i really enjoy Walking through cemeteries. I don't think that's odd, right? That's No, they're sort of peaceful. Peaceful, but I always feel like they're rich in history, even though I'm not necessarily sure what that history is, but I just have that sense. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are a lot of stories, you know, sometimes, especially the older headstones, you read some of the inscriptions on those headstones, and they, they tend to tell a story. Yeah. 
Yeah, every year, uh, my family we we clean up this uh, family plot. It's a very small plot, maybe twenty graves, um, but it's it's nice to kind of reconnect. And <laughs> there actually is buried in that plot somebody named Seymour Butts. Oh, it's really <laughs> yes. well. That's where this where the joke comes from. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, obviously, always be respectful. You know, we talk about paranormal investigating often, especially uh, my work with ghost hunters, and um, you know, we always. People always say, do you like to investigate in cemeteries? And the answer to that question is no, because it um, we're always concerned that people would disrespect the cemetery, mm, right. and we try to avoid that at all costs. But um, they are really peaceful places and uh, full of a lot of history and a lot of information, and um, we're going to learn a little bit more about it with Tui Snyder tomorrow night. And uh, Wednesday night's program, Alex Bose, who is the author of Psychedelic, Psychedelic Apes, and curator of museumofhoaxes.com will present bizarre but plausible alternative theories. So another great discussion coming your way Wednesday night, as always. Don't forget to swing by YouTube and Facebook. Find J.V. Johnson on both. Subscribe and like. That's going to do it for tonight. It's Beyond Reality Radio. We'll see you tomorrow. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.